What is it that we can learn from the likes of dogs and cats and other pets or domesticated animals that we just can't learn from observing human beings directly? Today's episode is one where I dive into an old classic uh, from the middle 1900s, an animated film, no less, that uses animals as a vehicle to explore some very human, well, struggles and issues and perhaps some things that we ought not take for granted as human beings, after all. I'm JCL Felter for The Writer's Lens, and this is 101 Dalmatians and the Things That Dogs Can Teach Us About Humanity. All right, guys, welcome back to The Writer's Lens. As before, I am your host, J.C. Alfelto, so thanks for tuning in. Uh, and this is continuing along the lines of the analysis series that I just love to do here on The Writer's Lens, where I talk storytelling, narrative, uh, themes, concepts found within story, because we are human beings and we love stories. And I love stories, which is the reason why I write stories and the reason why I talk about them and dissect them and analyze them and Heck, if you've been listening long enough, you know that by now, so maybe I should just you know, cut through that and get right to the meat and potatoes of this episode. So 101 Dalmatians, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, it's a classic. It's one of Disney's first animated films during its uh, original run with uh, what I think is probably the glory days of Disney, which would have been the mid-1900s when they were producing films like Pinocchio and Bambi and The Sword in the Stone, among others. And one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, I think, is the really cute tale of 101 Dalmatians. Now, many of you who are probably familiar with that uh, title or that story probably think of 101 Dalmatians and go, oh, that, that, you know, that nice story about those puppies that got lost and then their, their parents came and rescued them and then they adopted uh, all of the... 84 other puppies that there were there, and now it's 101. Oh, what a great story. Well, you know, it is a great story, and it's a, it's a fun little story, and it's about puppies, but to me, being the maybe perhaps twisted individual that I am when I watch this stuff now, uh, I see some very insidious themes that come to light inside of 101 Dalmatians, and when I say insidious, uh, well, I guess we'll just unpack that in a little bit, but Perhaps you never thought of it that way with 101 Dalmatians, and my goal here with this episode is to totally turn your world upside down and to never watch 101 Dalmatians ever again in the same light that you will after having heard this episode. So what do I mean by that? Well, 101 Dalmatians, for those that are maybe not aware, the quick 30-second synopsis is it's a story about a dog named Pongo. Uh, It was based upon a novel that was written, as, as were many animated films that Disney did early uh, early on. They were based upon books that were previously written. 101 Dalmatians is one of those. Uh, the Disney version follows uh, Pongo, who's a Dalmatian living in London. His pet or owner is Roger, who writes love songs, something that Pongo uh, uh, sort of playfully chides at his owner, saying he knows absolutely nothing about because he's a single uh, bachelor. And uh, they end up connecting with Purdy, who is a female Dalmatian that Pongo eyes from their bachelor pad window and then wants to go meet, so he convinces his owner, Roger, to go for a walk in the park. And Anita, who is Purdy's pet or owner, they bump into each other uh, through happenstance, and they end up getting married. And then, of course, Pongo and Purdy get married in whatever, whatever way dogs can. They get pregnant. They have 15 puppies. 
the villain, Cruella DeVille, whom I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of by now, wants to buy the puppies. Roger says, no way. And then, of course, she hatches a plan to, to dognap them with the help of Horace and Jasper, these two bumbling crooks, uh, who then will skin and uh, make fur coats out of these puppies. Well, not before Pongo and Purdy uh, go and rescue their puppies, and then in, in the midst of doing so, they rescue 84 other puppies with no names and no collars, and uh, they are absorbed into the Rogers and Anita's family and thus creates 101 Dalmatians. So on the surface, it sounds like a pretty tame story, right? Or it sounds like a pretty fun little kid's tale. Oh, they're puppies, and they've been dognapped, and oh, we've got to go rescue them, etc., um, I'll tell you what, when I first saw this as a young person, it was a fun story. It was cool because I'm, I'm more of a dog person than a cat person, to be uh, quite frank. And it's it's not a long movie. It's not a long film. But there's, but there's so many things now as an adult, now that I've sat and watched this with my kids, that I just kind of raise my eyebrow a bit and go, wow, I didn't realize perhaps that this is what this story was really getting at. And some of this might seem like a stretch to you guys, but I know if you've been following along long enough in the writer's lens that you know that uh, I'm not beyond a good stretch. I'm also not beyond a good insinuation or inference, if you will. And in this one, I want to cover three of which that uh, one of them particularly is kind of crazy and a few others or the other ones not perhaps as crazy. So uh the first thing that I want to cover about this movie slash film slash story is the fact that the puppies are dognapped, okay? Uh, and in the story, you're introduced to this family, okay? And it's told through dogs, right? Pongo and Purdy are mom and dad, and they have 15 puppies, and they're 15 kids, okay? They're 15 twins, if you will, or triplets, you know, or I don't even know what you'd call that if there's 15 born at the same time. Uh, oh, maybe it's a litter, okay? <laughs> I guess that's what you would call it as a litter. But anyway, they're all, you know, kids, and they play with mom and dad, and they watch TV with mom and dad. There's this really sweet scene where uh, they're watching uh, this story of uh, Thunderbolt, who is their favorite uh, character on TV that stops bad guys. He's this dog that has the ability to be a crime fighter. And again, these are these are acts, these are uh, events, these are things that families will do together. Mom and dad will sit and watch TV with their kids, or they'll th sit and tell stories. They tuck them in at night. So this is a very human thing that we're seeing happen through the through the eyes of these dogs. And each of these puppies has a name, has a collar, has an individual personality. There's Patch, there's Rolly, there's Pepper, there's I think Star maybe is one of them. I can't remember. But there's all of these different puppies, 15 of them, granted, and they all have their own identities in the, in the story. And what happens is that they are kidnapped. I mean, they're, they're dognapped by these two criminals, Horace and Jasper, at the behest of Cruella DeVille, who wants to use them for nefarious purposes that we'll get into. But this is no different than a kidnapping. You know, what if your children were taken against their will by some crazy person who wants them for some other purpose than to raise them? I mean, it's, it, it's a terrifying thought. I mean, it's a terrifying thing uh, to consider that this, is the, this would be the goal of some other person for your most prized possession. Because to me, my kids are my most prized possession outside this podcast, outside of my home and my job and my own livelihood. Uh, kids are our greatest treasure. Our children are our greatest treasure that we have. And to see that happen in this story, it's, 
it, it's it's delivered more softly because they're dogs, and so we can kind of detach ourselves a bit. But it's still coming through as a relatable experience, as you know, in a very terrifying way. These these dogs are are kidnapped and taken away. Now, of course, the humans are useless. Roger and Anita. Uh, they do try in the story. They try to figure out who stole these puppies. They're they're even in, enlisting the help of Cruella for whatever reason, who she, of course, plays it off as though she's going to help them find them. But, of course, she's behind all of it, being the nefarious villain that she is. And uh, the dogs decide to take it into their own paws and go try and save their kids, which is, of course, what any parent would do. You know, once the the authorities aren't able to do what they can do, you want to take it into your own hands to go and save your own kids. And so... That's why they go off to save their own children. They, they essentially run away from Roger and Anita to go save the puppies. And that's where the story uh, goes on and on and on. And this is why, uh, to me, uh, this is such an important part of the story to see that the parents are, are really the greatest advocates of their kids. You know, they're the ones that are entrusted with the guardianship of their children. Granted that this was a sort of an extenuating circumstance, and now they're going to try to rectify it. They're going to go and try to save their children. But being held hostage, okay, this is the very scary part of this story. That again, I this might seem like a stretch to some people, but it felt I felt the need to talk about it. There are 84 other puppies. When we find out where the other 15 are, they're held at the Deville place, which is Cruella Deville's old mansion, in this dark, damp, just bad environment. There's these two guys, Horace and Jasper, who are not these paternal figures whatsoever. They're sort of these bumbling crooks. They're drinking, you know, wine, I think, or booze. They're eating uh, lavishly at this place, watching television. And meanwhile, the puppies are just basically there. They could be pooping on the floor, peeing on the floor, who knows what they're doing. But they're basically like kids being huddled into like a camp. And they're not going anywhere. They, and they have no names. They have no collars on them. They're essentially nameless and faceless to some degree because there's so many of them. And throwing into that mix are these 15 that were stolen by Horace and Jasper, uh, Horace and Jasper who were kidnapped. And this image that happens inside the story, again, shows the helplessness of these puppies. It shows the helplessness of kids in general. Uh, the henchmen are outnumbered 48 to 1, but it doesn't matter because they're kids. Uh, they can't do anything about it, and there's no one there to protect them. And in many ways, I'm watching this thinking of, of many of the horrific things I've heard and read about in terms of just human trafficking and child trafficking and things of that nature that still go on today. They still go on. It's 2021, but these things are still happening. We live in a fallen, broken world, and these things unfortunately still happen. But this is why parents are so important. This is why intentional parents are so important, why guardianship is so important. It's the reason why you have helicopter parents, too. I mean, a lot of people give some parents a lot of grief for being all on top of their kids all the time. In many ways, it could be because of, could be because of a uh, you know insecurity there about not wanting their kids to get out of their sight for too long. Who knows? There could have been something traumatic in there in the parents' history. I don't know. But... Knowing this, knowing that kids need guardians, they need people around them that will protect them from other people is a fact of life, okay? It's a reality that we all have to live by, unfortunately. We can't float through life thinking that everybody has the best intentions around even our most precious possessions. We just can't have that. Uh, and this is why, you know, after, uh, you know, research that I've seen on this, communities that are the safest have mom and dad at, at home with their kids. Those are the safest communities by and large. Uh, there was a statistic on this that 
I, I had uh, read about a few years back. Uh, to me, that's the standard. The standard is is to have mom and dad at home, uh, and I don't mean all the time, but you know, mom and dad could be working or whatnot. But mom and dad are at home at night with their kids, and this is and when you have a community that is based around this idea, you end up having the safest community because you have a mom and a dad, you have a, a, a guy and a gal with something to do, which is to take care of their kids. And when they're busy doing that, they're not busy out trying to cause chaos and everything else. Uh, you know, I think Brigham Young actually had a very funny quote about this. Not that I agree with a lot of Brigham Young, but I saw it in a book once where he was quoted as saying, uh, any man unmarried beyond the age of 21 is a menace to the community, which I, I, I really resonate with. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> I think that's a pretty accurate statement to some degree, depending upon the life philosophies of that young man. So anyway, but... But that's the first real observation that I had in this. And, you know, that being said, uh, this just horrible sort of depiction of, you know, child trafficking that is being seen through these dogs. I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that actually goes on. And we're seeing this through the guise of a Disney film, uh, what that could be like potentially. And it's probably even worse, honestly. It's probably even worse. I mean, in the context of a Disney film, we're not getting the full gamut of it, but we're at least being introduced Again, in a soft way, because they're they're dogs. They're not they're not kids. To the horrors of such a thing as that. Secondly, um, and all that being said, uh, Pongo and Purdy represent moms and dads in a very positive light uh, because of their tenacious attitudes towards helping and saving their own children. Uh, you know, they won't give up. You know, Purdy, you know, she kind of gives into grief at one point. She doesn't, she doesn't know what to do. We're never going to find them. And Pongo steps up, you know, Pongo steps up as the, as the uh, husband, if you will, in the relationship, as the man in the relationship says, look, we're not going to give up on these kids. We're not going to give up on our puppies. We're going to figure out something out. Here's some ideas. We're, we're just not going to give into this. We are going to go out there and find our kids. If we, if, you know, even if we have to run away, we're going to do it. Now, again, am I saying that every that you know the, that the uh, woman cannot do this, the wife cannot do. This. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in the context of this story, when Purdy is dismayed, when she is uh, given into despair over the loss of her children, Pongo steps in and does the thing that he's supposed to do. He's supposed to uplift his spouse. <laughs> Again, being another dog, he uplifts her. He does the right thing. He says, "Look, we're not going to give up. We're going to go find them. That's what we're going to do." And so we go on from there. But even more so than that. There's this incredibly sweet scene that takes place uh, right after the rescue. It takes place right after Pongo and Purdy break in and they beat up Horace and Jasper and they rescue all the all all 99 of them basically. They're 15 plus the 84 that have no tags and are bought and paid for. Uh, in the story, they rescue all these uh, poor puppies before they're skinned for their coats. Uh, they're, they they find themselves in a barn. Okay, now for those who have never seen the film, um, you know, leading up to it, they rescue everyone. They make their way to a barn. There's this group of animals that help them. It's a very funny scene, actually. There's this colonel and a sergeant and a lieutenant, and these this this horse, a cat, and a dog that end up helping them. It's it, it's fun, but they end up at a barn. They end up in a barn, uh, away from the bad guys, and they have this little reunion. And if you can imagine for a moment, there's this pan in, or not pan in, but a, this this panned out scene where Pongo and Purdy are standing or sitting on either side of each other, and the the camera's zooming in, and the, the the puppies, you know, there's this really warm moment where all the the kids are they're wagging their tails and they're they're jumping over mom and dad and stuff, and 
And then immediately the camera cuts to Purdy. And she's leaning down and she just sort of immerses herself in the kids. And she says, oh, my darlings, my darlings. And, you know, the, the, the puppies are licking her and everything. And then it cuts to Pongo, who is the dad. And he's sitting upright and he has the, you know, the, his kids are climbing on him and they're tugging on his ear a little bit differently than mom. And he's got his tongue hanging out. He's all happy and proud. And, you know, they're, they're climbing on his back. They're jumping on his head. And again, just in this, these few seconds that we see this interaction, mom and dad, the differences of mom and dad, um, again, it's only for an instant that, you know, mom just, you know, just immerse myself in my kids. I just want to be around them. I want to be cozy with them. I want to be next to them. The one thing that's funny about my wife, and I will say this as, as truthfully as, as I can, my wife will let my, our kids climb all over her. But if she doesn't want me near her, she will let me know. Like, she will let me know that I am not allowed to be near her. But when it comes to my kids, there's, there's, there are boundaries, okay? There are boundaries. But it's almost as if there are no boundaries. It's like, well, of course you can come cuddle with mom. Of course you can come over here. I'll scratch your back. I'll, I'll, I'll play with your hair. I'll, you know, we'll just sit and, and, and be next to each other for a while. There's just this, this innate desire of moms to be next to their kids, uh, this this nurturing aspect of a mom, which is so beautiful and, and wonderful that moms have in, in wanting to be close to their children. And you see that in this really quick moment, and you can just pick up on it if you're watching closely enough, that that's what Purdy does. Now, contrast that with, with Pongo. Now, I'm not saying dads can't sit and cozy with their kids and they can't do any of those things, but there's a difference, right? There's a difference between mom and dad. There just there is a difference, and dad is the more physical, playful type, and uh, and you know he's kind of sitting up all proud. Oh, here are my children. You know they're all around me, and they're playing with me and tugging on my ear. They're doing the things that we would normally do, you know, to test themselves. Uh, you know, one of the things my son, one of the things that my sons love to do is they love to just pounce all over me. Okay, they love to just wrestle and and test uh, test me, test their own strength against me, which is great. You know, that's uh, what fathers and sons should be doing. But to the point of this all, um, you know, Pongo is doing this with his kids. And again, this is what dad does with his kids, wrestles around and stuff. Not to say mom can't either, but dad, you know, primarily usually does this. And as he's doing this, though, something really unique happens. He starts to name every single one of his kids. He says, Patch, Pepper, Roly, you little rascal. Uh, he starts naming them, okay? He's pointing out each and every single one of them. And I think this is significant, again, with the stretches, of course, but I think this is significant to pick up on him because the reason why Pongo does it and the reason why Purdy does not is, to me, this is as much psychological as I think it could be even spiritual to some degree, is that a mother in a way, has a very unique bond with her kids because she's the one who carries them to birth, okay? Uh, mothers have this incredibly unique burden, but also the joy of bringing the next generation into the world. It's the it's one of the most phenomenal things ever for me, being a man, watching my wife uh, give birth to our three children and just seeing how her body changes and the things that change for her until finally the baby's here and the kicks and all this other kind of stuff. It's It's truly remarkable, the process of of getting pregnant, well, for its own reasons, and then for, and then watching it as it plays out until the baby finally arrives. Women have a unique experience outside of men where men are a little bit more detached. We know we're detached from all the kicking and from the body changes. I mean, we're just there to support and provide and, 
and to be there. And then ultimately this child comes and now we, you know, hopefully can accept this baby. For a dad to name his kids individually shows a level of intimacy that dad is intentional about. And to me, that that speaks to something. That speaks to a good father. A good father is not complacent. He's not passive. He's not just a warm body in the room. He knows each of his kids. He knows them intimately, and he's intentional with them. That's one of the hallmarks of being a great dad. You know, there's this really funny skit on Pittsburgh Dad. I love the Pittsburgh Dad uh, YouTube channel. It's really funny. But there was one in particular years ago where uh, Pittsburgh Dad takes his kids to the doctor's office and he has to fill out the medical questionnaire. He never really does this. And he's calling into his wife asking uh, Deb, he's asking Deb, hey, you know, what's what's Johnny's birthday? Or, you know, what's he allergic to? Yes, yes, I know what his birthday is, sort of. You know, and it's it's joking. It's joking about how a lot of dads husbands or dads in general can be a little bit passive or they can be sort of uh, incompetent when it comes to the details of their kids. And I'm not saying that dads have to be on every single detail of their kids, but at least having a knowingness about them to show that they do care for them and they love them. And to name them in such a way, I think, is a very unique thing that this this movie about dogs does a great job of it. It really shows that. It showcases that the dad is is naming each one of them and calling them by name. He doesn't do all 15, but you're given the impression that he knows each and every one of them and he calls them by name. Uh, the last thing I want to illuminate uh, in this story outside of you know child trafficking and what it means to be really good parents, what it looks like really good parents to the guise of dogs, is this broken relationship of Cruella and her henchmen on display of what a bad, broken marriage looks like. Again, in contrast to the dogs themselves of Pongo and Purdy, who have this very supportive, very loving relationship and this the, the care for their kids that they have. Cruella makes for a great villain, uh, and by extension, Horace and Jasper make for great villains too, because of the fact that their relationship is totally transactional. Cruella wants the puppies so that she can turn them into fur coats. That's the reason why she's doing what she's doing. She's this cruel, vindictive woman. She wants to take puppies, innocent little little baby puppies, and turn them into fur coats for her own enjoyment. It's pretty twisted, right? Well, on top of that, she has these two henchmen, Horace and Jasper, who are basically two sides of a coin or two halves of a, of a sandwich for all, for all intents and purposes. And these guys are sort of the hired muscle or the hired thugs that she takes on to go achieve this goal. And they don't really think for themselves, okay? These guys can't really think for themselves. They have to be told what to do. Uh, clearly, uh, it's not so much that they're halfwits, but they're, we're given the impression that these guys are not too sharp. You know, the dogs evade them. For instance, when the dogs get away, uh, you know, Horace makes this comment. Horace is the, the frumpy little guy, and Jasper's the tall, lanky one in terms of the contrast of the physicality of them two. But Horace is always making these sort of insightful concept, or co- comments to which Jasper, who's kind of like the de facto leader, says, oh, Horace, don't be an idiot. They would never do that. Them dogs aren't as smart as us. And yet the dogs are outsmarting them. You know, there's this scene where Horace says, well, maybe they went down onto the frozen li- pond so as to not leave their tracks, you know. And Jasper's like, you idiot, Horace. And of course, that's what the dogs did because they're smarter than these guys. <laughs> you know, that's what happens. Um, and yet these guys are dangerous. You know, these guys are dangerous for one reason, because they're not intelligent and because they will listen to the uh, negotiations, if you will, of a mad woman, of a, of a woman such as Cruella. And again, sounds like a stretch, but this 
relationship they have, where Cruella is this vindictive, rather controlling, rather twisted, perverted uh, woman who's very vain, uh, who's very much into herself and what she wants, and has sort of this fantasy about who she is and doesn't care who she, who the, who she uh, has to run over to get her things. And then she has Horace and Jasper, who are basically these dimwits who don't know better. They're, they've always been doing dumb things. They're bumbling through life. They don't really have much purpose. They're just basically, for the next buck, they, they're, they're thinking very short-sighted. Uh, they don't have a lot of skills, perhaps, other than just being you know, crooks. And they have a beat-up you know, beat car that hardly goes anywhere. It's, it's like a broken marriage. It's like a really broken marriage between Cruella, Horace, and Jasper. I mean, again, if Horace and Jasper were the same person, if they were one person, then you could say they're, they're both just dim-witted together. But this is contrasted to the relationship of Roger and Anita and Pongo and Purdy the dogs. You have these loving relationships where there's a complementary uh, relationship of, of a better kind with Roger and Anita or Pongo and Purdy. And then you have Cruella with her henchmen, which is very broken. It's very wrong. It's a, you know it's very selfish in to some degree. You know they call each other names that are very uh, toxic. You know like uh, you know Horace and Jasper are talking behind her back, and Cruella's talking behind the back of these guys. You're like you idiots, you better get this done, or I'll take care of you. You know blah blah blah. You know hey, we just want our boodle. You know that's what you know Jasper's telling her. You know we don't want no more of this. You know you you need to you know figure this out. The cops are after us. You know, we can't keep these puppies forever. You better take care of this for me, says Cruella. You know, it's this incredibly horrible, terrible relationship. But it's transactional because they have conditions that each side has to be met so they both can get what they want. And that's a category A bad marriage when you have too many conditions on your relationship. When you have to do this or I'm not going to be happy or or you have to do this, or I'm going to treat you poorly, or if you treat me poorly, I'm going to treat you poorly back because, you know, even if you do it unintentionally, I'm still going to treat you poorly because I was wronged and I should never be wronged. That's a bad, bad relationship. And Cruella, like I said, makes for a great villain because she's the opposite of the heroes. She is this very demented, delusional woman who is on the outside very wealthy, very rich, uh, seems to, maybe, maybe she inherited money, maybe she didn't, I don't know. Uh, and she appears to be this really well-to-do socialite, but in reality, she's this incredibly, incredibly evil person who wants to kill puppies, who wants to take puppies from their parents and turn them into fur coats for her own enjoyment. It's pretty twick, you know, uh, sick and twisted, right? And then, of course, there's Horace and Jasper that I've you know explained at length already in this episode and the reasons for why those guys are, in many ways, just as jacked up as she is. This rewatching of 101 Dalmatians for me as an adult has been very eye-opening for me. And like I said, the old days of Disney, I think, have some classics. They, they really touch on these themes of uh, importance, uh, things that are still relevant today. Uh, and in many ways, I, I know that I've, I keep using this term stretch in this episode, like, oh, this might be a stretch. But I, I think that you, could, you wouldn't have to stretch it very much to see these things going on in this particular movie. And maybe the next time you watch 101 Dalmatians, you'll appreciate a little bit more because of these, these sort of deeper themes that are going on inside of this story uh, to help illuminate some human experiences, even if they are through the eyes of the dogs. I mean... Even the Twilight Bark, this concept of the 
the phone chain, if you will, where the dogs are barking and telling each other, hey, these puppies are loose in London, and it causes all of London to, 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 uh, to erupt in a, a bunch of barking dogs all over the city. If you can remember that scene, if you've never seen it, you can go watch it. Uh, but the idea that the dogs will rally together for a good cause uh, is something uh, that human beings have a hard time doing. You know, there's so many, you know, push and pull, and it's got to be my way or it's got to be your way. And instead of, hey, what's the common goal here? Let's get to the common goal. Where do I fit into this? Where is my role? What, what can I do in this? Uh, are these questions that we would ask of ourselves? Um, and in many ways, looking at the dogs, they seem to have it down pat. Now, again, granted, dogs don't have as many skill sets as human beings. And <laughs> in, in the context of this story, they can talk, at least. Uh, they're still running around naked. Uh, but at least they can talk and and whatnot, and we can see through their eyes perhaps these these deeper concepts that we as human beings can relate to. So anyway, that's my episode on 101 Dalmatians and seeing things through the eyes of these canines and how we might be able to learn something from it. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this stretch of an episode, of course. I guess I've been on a bit of a Disney kick lately, at least old school Disney, because new school Disney I'm not as I'm not really as into, but... Uh, I'll be back again, hopefully in the next week or so. I have a birthday to celebrate coming up here soon, and uh, that's always fun, of course. Not as much as when I was a kid, but make do with it as you can as an adult, I guess. But as always, uh, be sure to like, share, subscribe to the podcast. Let a friend know about it. Maybe you guys can debate about it over a run or perhaps some coffee or something like that. That's always the biggest win for any podcaster is win your material and content gets talked about outside of just the confines of the show and uh, really challenges the thinking of the listeners. So again, big thanks to those out there supporting the channel still. Appreciate it. And uh, once again, this is JSC Alfelter for the Writer's Lens. I'll catch up with you guys again soon.